Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Once again, we are coming to you from my sumptuous balcony here in Las Vegas, Nevada, with our beautiful dry heat. And we have another conversation that you are absolutely going to love. This is going to be one of those ones where I'm going to tell you right now, go get yourself a pad of paper and two pens. And I say two pens because just when you're capturing that aha moment, the ink goes out or something happens or it gets that weird little thing where it just refuses to write. Or in my case, your cat may run up and run away with it before you have a chance to stop them. And we don't want you to miss a thing. We are going to be discussing something called performative speaking, which goes into how to tap your prospects' emotions. And to guide us through this concept, we have with us Robbie Crabtree. He's an attorney who has worked over 100 high-profile cases, along with teaching persuasive speaking at Southern Methodist University Law School. He also coaches students to compete nationally in speech competitions every semester. He's worked with leaders at Apple, Google, Microsoft, and Reddit, to develop their speaking ability. And what he's going to share with you today is going to transform or possibly transform your persuasive ability. And with that, Robbie Crabtree, come on in. The weather's fine. Oh, Adam, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I'm in, in sunny LA. It's not too far away from you. It's beautiful here and just excited to be here and talk with you today. Yeah, I was in California a few weeks ago. Uh, you guys don't have the same temperatures, but you sure as hell have the humidity. There, there is some humidity here, but uh, yeah. as, a, as a Houston, as a Houston boy, I uh, grew up in the humidity, so I'm uh, pretty used to it at this point. I've been to Houston, I've been to Dallas, I've been to Fort Worth. I know what you're talking about. Oh, swampy. Yeah. Yes, so it, yes, it is. <laughs> All right. So before we dive in, and I know we not only do you have a lot of great stuff to share with us on this topic, but this is something that is near and dear to my heart as well. So I look forward to sort of geeking out with you a bit on some of this influence and persuasion stuff. But before we do that, tell us a bit about your journey in your own words and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. You know, I, I started this journey by going to law school and quickly realizing that I love being in a courtroom. See, I was a, a college baseball player so I love that competitive aspect. And, and as a lawyer, the, the, the most competition-friendly environment was, was going to jury trial, going and actually getting in a courtroom and trying these cases. And so over the course of my career, I became a prosecutor and spent the first seven years of my career trying 100 jury trials as a prosecutor, trying everything from murders to capital murders to child abuse cases. In fact, the final year of my time in the Dallas District Attorney's Office was focused only on child abuse cases. And then I left and went into private practice to learn a little bit of the business and, and get some experience on the other side. I actually tried two 
cases while I was out on the defense side and tried both a child abuse case and a murder case. And both those cases ended up in not guilty verdicts, at which point uh, I made this this pretty interesting, sharp right turn into entrepreneurship and helping other people and coaching and consulting work to, to really help them learn the skills that I developed as a trial lawyer, because it felt so almost unfair to me that like this world of persuasion and influence and human psychology is locked away inside of the courtroom. And I was like, there's a way to teach business leaders this stuff. And I want to be that guy to do it. A couple things on what you just said. My childhood dream was to become an attorney. And I think there were a couple reasons for it. Part of it might've been that my dad also went to law school, but didn't finish. Maybe I thought that I had a, a torch to carry there. I don't know. Uh, the other thing is I had this childhood dream of becoming president of the United States. And somewhere along the line, somebody told me that uh, becoming an attorney was so, sort of a fast track to that. And I believed it, which is kind of ironic when you look at uh, our most recent set of chief executives, how few of them have actually been attorneys. Uh, so, and then when you go back through history and you look at how few of them were practicing attorneys at all, it's very interesting how I even got that idea. Anyway, went to Penn State, I majored in political science, I learned how to read and write really good, and the final semester I was there, I attended a three-hour seminar that was facilitated by one of the adjunct professors in Dickinson Law School. He was charismatic. He was infuriating. He was mesmerizing. He drew you in. At the end of those three hours, I knew there was no way in hell I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> Based on what I knew then. And today, I'd have to think about it again. I might or I might not. I'm just not really sure. It's one of those things. Now, another thing that I like to mention in my teachings, I say there's no such thing as the truth. And people say, what do you mean there's no such thing as the truth? And, they, and uh, what it comes down to is a conflation between the words truth and fact. Facts can be scientifically, empirically, and otherwise proven to be so. Truth is what we view through our eyes, our own individual eyes, based on our educations, experiences, and everything that's gone down with us. This is why you can have three people view the same crime scene from three different angles, give three different accounts of it under oath, and be polygraph tested giving those accounts. They can all be mutually contradictory. Nobody would, be, would fail the lie detector. They would all pass, and none of them could be logically tried for perjury. The reason being is very simply, they all looked at it from three different angles and through the lens of their own experiences. Lie detectors don't fact check. They test for signs of prevarication, which are physical and other indicators that you're basically making something up that's in conflict with what you believe yourself to be true, naturally so. So for that reason, I like to point out that when it comes to attorneys, particular criminal attorneys, that the criminal justice system calls for the defense attorney's job to not be to prove their client innocence, but rather to create enough reasonable doubt that no jury could convict based on the facts as they're presented. So as an attorney, you being an attorney, me not being one, you would have more to say about this than I would, but I want to get your thoughts on this before we dive in. Yeah, it, it's interesting because obviously I spent most of my career as a, as a prosecutor and so most of my world was trying to prove somebody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. 
Right. And, and, and in all honesty, that's a, a, a really challenging thing to do, especially this is where I say like the, the big kind of change for me actually. So like the, the thing that kind of sent me down this rabbit hole that ultimately led me to where I am today is I remember that I was in my eighth jury trial and it was a, it was a very simple vanilla driving while intoxicated case. There was no one was hurt. It wasn't that serious. I was a misdemeanor prosecutor, really low level, but I, I thought that I was going to win this case because he was above the legal limit. He admitted to drinking. He had said that he shouldn't have been driving, you know, slam dunk, you know, I'm going to get another win. My colleagues are going to, you know, congratulate me and everything's going to be great. And then the jury came back and gave a not guilty verdict to me. And I remember just sitting there, like, I, I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach, right? The air had been knocked out of me. And, and then I walked out and I overheard the jury say something to the defendant that really did change the trajectory of my, my career. And they told him, they go, we know you were guilty. You know, you were guilty, but we believed you when you said that you felt bad and that you were sorry. It was in that moment that I realized facts, logic, reason, all that is not enough. Right. And that's really what right. led me down this path to understanding emotions, what moves, what moves people and how do we create that in an audience? How do we create that in a jury? And from that point on, that's really what I spent my career studying and developing, especially when I went into child abuse as a prosecutor, because those cases really come down to a child says one thing happened and the defendant says it didn't. And that's, that's the entire case. There's nothing else more like to it. So I, I remember thinking like that, that was where everything kind of turned and what it leads to. So to your point about the defense attorney, the way I look at it is a defense attorney's job is to hold the state to its burden, to its duty, to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And we want it to be hard. It should be hard on a prosecutor because sending somebody to prison, taking away their freedom, their liberty is a serious deal. And every card should be stacked against them in order to do so. And that's really the defense attorney's job. Now, like I said, I ended up representing a couple of people on the defense side who I thought were, were innocent of what they had done. And ultimately, the jury came back with, with that same determination, both in a, a murder case and a child abuse case. But people would ask me, well, Robbie, how could you switch sides? And it was because, one, people are wrongfully accused. That's just a fact. And the second thing is you want to hold the state to the burden. So it, you, you're right. You're not trying to prove that they're innocent most of the time. You're trying to hold the state, the, the government, to do their job. Otherwise, a lot of sort of innocent people and miscarriages of justice start to happen. Yeah, I without getting political here, I mean, I would say myself that uh, I am in alignment with that statement. Better that better for one guilt, better than a thousand guilty people to go free than one innocent one get locked up. Yeah, that was that was always my greatest concern as a prosecutor was somebody who didn't do it going to prison or being convicted of something. Uh, and there were many times where plenty of my colleagues wanted me to convict somebody because they knew that I could. Uh, and I would have to step away and say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that because I can't say with 100% certainty that they did this thing. And I'm never going to convict somebody unless I have 100% certainty. As a prosecutor, I felt like that was my duty. Yeah. Well, and I can certainly agree with that. So moving from the courtroom to other areas where we can use this, first of all, let's define our terms. Performative speaking. Yeah, so performative speaking is what I, it's what I call my philosophy. And the reason I named it that is performative means ever relating to performance art. And the word performativity means the ability for words to bring about change. 
And I really do think about speaking in those two ways. Words can bring change and it's always performance art because always changing. It's always about creating emotion in our audience. Now, performative speaking to me is using other art forms, other experiences that we ourselves have lived to draw from a sense of expertise and basically recreate that emotional feeling that we've had in our audience so that they can get to where they need to because emotion is what inspires action. And then we deliver the content, all the logic, all the reason, all the facts on top of it because that's how an audience rationalizes their, their decision. So they, they actually decide based on emotion, but no one's going to say, I made an emotional choice. They're always going to say, I did it for this, this, and this reason. And that means they need that logic, that reason. If we think about that art of rhetoric kind of triangle from, from Aristotle, we have ethos, logos, and pathos, ethos yeah. and, and logos, right? Being the two more credibility and logic, and then pathos being that emotion. Yeah. Where does Legos come into this? So, so logos is obviously. I, the, I was, the, I was, ma- I was making a joke. Where does oh, Legos you're talking in? about like, like Legos? <laughs> but, but, but no, let's go back to what you were seriously saying about the logos. Yeah, so logos is just the logic that comes in, and, yeah. and the truth is, people need logic. It's there's this idea that you can just be emotionally appealing, and sometimes you can get people to move that way, but realistically, mm-hmm. you need all the pieces. Like you need to be able to hit. There's a reason it's a triangle. And you need to hit right. them all. You need to hit the logic part. You need to hit the credibility part. And you also need to hit the emotion part. And too many business owners and entrepreneurs only focus on the credibility and the logic. And they completely forget about the emotional side, which is why they struggle sometimes to convince people to support them, to buy their product, to use their service, yeah. whatever it may be. Uh, I cover this in some of my teachings where by being too logical, by being too precise about what the offer is, you can actually turn somebody away. Just give one example. Uh, I've seen people being coached that increasing the number of DVDs in their home study course. I mean, although I can't remember last time I've seen a physical product, (laughs) but uh, but let's rewind 10 years. Uh, They were actually being coached to price their product based on the number of DVDs it had and whether or not it had any uh, any content at all, really, just how many DVDs it had in it. And I made the argument that not only was that in itself a fallacy, but the supposed selling point of, wow, you get 15 DVDs that take you through all 15 points of my system, and it's all for just $4.97. Well, somebody could look at that and say, when the hell do I have time to watch 15 DVDs? Sorry, no can. 100%. Whereas if uh, somebody had shown me how taking this course could save me 15 hours a week. Yeah, that, that might've been a can-do decision. It, it's kind of that, that there's that old uh, saying about Abe, Abe Lincoln, right? If he needed to chop down a tree, he would spend like 99% of the time sharpening the ax. Yep. And, and there's this idea that a lot of people get stuck in this trap of more equals better. And the truth is for me, at least, if somebody can give me the essence of the lesson, and it takes them five minutes to completely change my life, that is more valuable to me than that same message that would take 15 hours because I can start implementing it faster if I learn it in five minutes than in 15 hours. Right, right, right. You know, it's interesting. You you bring up how marketers and entrepreneurs selling things will sometimes lean too heavily on logic. I have an example, and this this happened to a friend of mine where uh, it was about five years ago, she told me this. Uh, So maybe around 2015 or so, she was uh, getting the hard sell to join somebody's mastermind. And they kept 
coming to her with all these storytelling based examples of how her life and her business would change and how it impacted them personally. And they felt bad that she wasn't stepping up to invest in herself because they believed in her. But the way they did it set off her alarms that all she had to do is look at the logic and say, this is stupid. And, yeah. let, me and, let, and let me develop it a little bit further before yeah. you, before you re react to it. She looked at things like, what she had planned for her business for the next 12 months, what her financials really looked like. And there was just absolutely no way this was happening. And it was literally figuratively and physically impossible for her to do it. So she actually got suspicious the extent to which there was an emotional appeal being made to her and the extent to which they were trying to get her to set aside the facts that she had come up with and invent another set of facts to justify the decision. It, it, it reminds me, I, I kind of talk about it a little bit, like there's meat and candy or meat and seasoning, whatever yeah. it is, where the content, like that logic and that, that credibility and that reason, that's kind of like those, you know, your, your protein, your, your fats, your carbs, whatever it is. Right. And then all of your seasoning, all of the things that make it taste really good, that's the, the emotional part of it. And the truth is a meal isn't complete without both of those. And sometimes we like, nobody would ever just eat a bunch of salt, right? It, like that would be ridiculous, but yeah, sometimes. Yeah because, yeah, because you'll throw up. Right, exactly. And yeah. that's what some people do with pure emotional um, appeals and people will start to see through that. And that's why you want to appeal to emotion, but you've got to build in that logic and that reason and that credibility on top of it. So it becomes this full kind of package of, oh, like I'm getting all the protein, carbs, and fats I need, but it also tastes really good. So that's why I want it. This, I just thought of this. Um, I don't eat steak myself because I don't eat things that used to breathe and have a mama. But it's interesting how a cauliflower steak tastes a lot like a beef steak. And it comes down to seasoning and flavoring. The base couldn't be more different between the two. Uh, one is uh, muscle carved out of an animal and the other is a vegetable that's picked out of the ground. But yet, the taste of those two things can be so similar. Yeah, because there's still substance in either of those, yeah. right? There's still nutritional right. value. Yeah. And the, the seasoning on top of it is what makes it stand out. And so I think that's one of these lessons to remember is we can't just have one or the other. There's a reason why Aristotle made it a triangle. It, it doesn't work if you're not hitting all three of these pieces. And so we've always want to make sure when we're putting together any sort of talk, any sort of presentation, any sort of marketing or sales pitch or anything that it says, are we hitting each of these so that when somebody hears the entire message, they say, man, that was a really well-rounded message. And I can feel both emotionally invested in it, but also that I'm using sound logic and reason and making my determination. Yeah. When I, in my work with helping my clients with their closing strategies, I illustrate to them the power of actually using a combination of tonality and pitch with their voice and their body language to create a sense of elevating as you're moving toward making the offer. That's one of the tactics that I, that, I, that I work with and I found to be pretty effective for myself and I've helped other people would do it as well. Now, that 
where that really comes from is the idea of me or the person as the person making the offer showing their excitement. Now, at the same time, why is the person making the offer being excited not enough to make the prospect excited necessarily? So sometimes when when the, the prospect is seeing you as excited, it can almost be this, this alarm that goes off to somebody of like, ooh, something's coming. Like they're trying to, they're trying to get me somewhere. And uh-huh. anytime, anytime we're in that mode where we feel like somebody's potentially selling to us, when we feel those things, we start to basically put up our guard because we, we don't want to get sucked into that. We want to be able to say, hey, I'm still making this logical decision. And this is a very common mistake is that we think that if I am demonstrating some emotion, it will translate to the other person that I'm speaking to. But the truth is my life experience is very different than your life experience. Uh-huh. So, so the question that I always tell people, there's a couple of questions to ask when you go into this is where is that prospect at currently? I mean, put yourself in their shoes. What are their thoughts or desires, their, their needs, their fears, all of this. And where do you want them to end up? at the end of kind of this talk. And what is that bridge, that emotion that gets them from yep. point A to point B? point B? Now, I always tell people this, point B should not be that they're going to that they're going to say yes to the sale. Because we never know what's going on in that person's world where we can we can't reverse engineer back from the sale, right? They could have had a family member that got covid or they could have got in a wreck or a bad argument with their partner earlier that day, so they're just not in a headspace to say yes. So I tell people is what you're trying to get to is actually that step right before, which is the goal. And the goal is if they're thinking that when they leave the meeting with you, they might not buy right now. They might. But even if they don't buy with you right now, something is going to trigger them in the future where they're going to come back to you and say, you know what, Adam, it's I thought about it more and I really want to take you up on that offer you had made, you know, two months ago. And I see this all the time with clients I work with. Yep. In, in my sales process, it's very much like, hey, I'm just going to give you the information. Here's what it is. We'll walk through it. And I can't tell you how many clients leave that call and say, I'm going to think about it. And within two or three months, they then come back to me and say, hey, I'd really love to work with you. And you just have to be willing to say, you know what, I can't, I can't guarantee a sale right now, but I can guarantee that goal. And if I put that goal in play, more often than not, it's going to lead to the outcome I want. It just may take longer than the immediate moment. I remember an episode of a TV show. It was actually a, it was actually a cartoon show called King of the Hill. And Hank Hill worked for Strickland Pro- Propane, selling propane and propane accessories, which included grills. So they had monthly sales cycles at Strickland Propane. People would come in uh, at having interest in buying a grill. He would give them the pamphlet and then show them the door. That, w- that, was, his, that was his sales approach. He'd give them the pamphlet and show them the door. That was it. He got into a sales competition with somebody who did selling tactics. And it seemed like that other person kept selling grill after grill after grill after grill. And Hank Hill was going to be dethroned as the top salesman at, at Strickland Propane. However, what happened is that salesperson that got all those sales started getting a lot of complaints from dissatisfied customers. And they started, and toward the end of the month, they all came in and started demanding refunds. And at the same time, they were streaming in demanding refunds. All those people that Hank Hill had given brochures to started walking back in, holding the brochure, saying, yes, I'd like to buy a grill now. How do we get started? And he won the contest. It's, 
it's such a great example because it's it's not about pushing somebody into the the sale, right? In, in a lot of ways, what we're trying to do is basically, if we think of the movie Inception, so we'll, we'll stick on pop culture references, is we're trying to plant those seeds in that prospect's head of like, what's going to happen like, and let their brain do the work. When all of a sudden they're in their day-to-day life and they're realizing, huh, like I'm really not as good of a storyteller as I need to be for as an entrepreneur or huh, my communication, like I'm just not, I'm not connecting to potential new employees and they're not signing up to, to be a part of my company. And all of a sudden a conversation that, you know, I might've had with them a month ago rings back in their head. And they were like, ah, I had this conversation with Robin. He said he can help with that. Maybe it's time I go back there. And that's ultimately what leads to that. And it's really this idea of, I'm not trying to push you into the sale. I'm trying to give you the right ingredients and let it marinate and kind of come to fruition to fertilize and get the sunlight and the water that it needs to take root. Where when it's the right time for you, you come because now you want to work with me, not that I forced you into it. Right. I have a really big thing that I don't force people into it. One of the things I do tend to do is if I have somebody who's in the cycle, I won't end a call without scheduling a follow-up call. Now that follow-up call could be next Tuesday because that's one where we do the transaction and get started. It could be uh, three days from now because I've given the information and I want them to take the time and let it marinate with them and raise the natural questions that will form as they go through their process of making the decision that makes most sense for their business. And in some cases they may say, well, uh, you know, uh, I'm probably about three months away from this. I'll schedule an appointment for three months from now. The, the art of the follow-up is one of those sorely lacking skills that a lot of entrepreneurs have. And I'm going somewhere with this. This is a two-part question, but let's deal with what you're going to say first. And then I'll spring part two on you. Yeah, I, I just think you've got to follow up. Like if you're not willing to, to put in that work and because if, if you believe that you can deliver value to that person, why wouldn't you continue to put it in front of them? You want to help them. That's the job of any salesperson, any entrepreneur is to help people. And if you can help them, you have this obligation to continue to put it in front of them and try to help them. And so I, I very much am in line with your, your follow-up there, Adam. So here's part two. And this is for our listeners, because I want them to gain. This is for our listeners. This is where you get out your pad of paper and two pens. If you have somebody who has said, yeah, Robbie, I may be interested in that, but uh, in the fall, because I am already committed to this one thing that's going to run 90 days through the summer, and I don't want any distractions. But after that, I think I may be ready. Now, you may be hearing that and thinking, oh, goodness, what could distract them between now and then? So what are some tactics that the salesperson, the entrepreneur can use to help to remain top of mind with that person without it seeming like yet another round of, uh, you ready yet? You ready yet? When are we even doing this? My favorite tactic is provide value. Okay. Right. And that could mean, so for instance, I, I deal with a lot of storytelling and, and sales and speaking and, and how do you open? How do you loop? How do you do all these sort of pieces? And what I do is I just create a lot of content. And then to those people who have said, hey, I'm interested in working with you in three months or six months, what I'll do when I write something or put some piece of content that I think is going to be useful to them, I'll just send it to them and say, hey, I wrote this and I thought you might find it useful, just wanted to put it on your radar. I'm not talking about starting up a new conversation. I'm not doing anything. I'm just putting value in front of them to try to help them. And I think that it's right. such an easy way to show 
I'm not just in this for the transaction. I want to help you. And even if that means you get all the value out of me providing you the free content and you never come and work with me, the, the likelihood that you're going to have a positive opinion of me and then share that with other people you know who may want to work with me is extremely high. So the easiest way I think you can stay top of mind is continue to provide value, continue to reach out to them and say, hey, I did this thing I thought you'd find it useful. Or you see an article somewhere and you're like, hey, this really stood out to me. It reminded me of the work you're doing at this place. I thought it might be a good kind of learning resource for you. That's one of my favorite ways to continue to build that relationship is just provide more, more value. And that takes very little effort. I mean, you could be sharing a third-party resource in some cases. It's just, hey, uh, hey, Robbie, remember our conversation we had? Not, not, no, my internal conversation. Remember our conversation I had with Robbie? So I just, uh, you know, like I find you on Messenger or whatever, I say, hey, Robbie, I saw this article. I thought it might be interesting based on what we spoke about. It, it's a, exactly what I'm thinking, Adam, is, is that's just a, a very easy way. And then there's always also just following up like, hey, you know, I just wanted to touch base see how things are going with you. Is there anything that I could help you with in the meantime? Very like non-forceful, just is there like a quick question or something that you've got going on that I can help you with? Again, me just trying to deliver value to them, not asking them for the sale, not doing anything because at the end of the day, everything we do as an entrepreneur, as a salesperson is about delivering value to that other person. And so if we can demonstrate that we will deliver value even when we're not getting paid for it, What do you think that signals to them that when they're paying us, what kind of value are we going to deliver? I'm on several people's radars in that way. And uh, they send me little things every once in a while, or uh, they may occasionally like every six weeks or two months, just check in and say, Hey, uh, just wanted to see how things are going for you. Now, obviously I know it's because they want me to join their program. Duh. But when they can take that approach of just, Hey, want to see how everything's going, anything I can do to help. I'll, I'll gladly tell them what I'm doing. Because who knows, maybe just me typing a couple sentences about here's where I am now could lead to something that could be helpful for all of us. Uh, you, you don't know that till you try. I think it comes down to this idea that we, it, it's very little of life and, and is a zero sum game. Now I spent right. a decent amount of my life in zero sum situations but very few places outside of a courtroom are zero sum. They're mostly positive sum. And really the, the, the quote, right? A, a rising tide lifts all boats can be true. Yes. So One much of my of favorite we, quotes. Right. So much of what we do is a win-win. Like let's help each other because I can help you and you can help me. And then everybody ends up benefiting. And if we can set up our interactions in that way, in that kind of lens with that perspective, good things tend to follow. And, and that's generally how I try to approach things as long as I'm not in a courtroom having to deal in these zero sum uh, negotiation type style situations. Yeah. Oh, I, I understand. I understand. So uh, here's a few other things I want to cover. And I want to get a little bit specific about this because we've laid some great theories here. And by the way, I love the idea of how easy it is to actually stay on your prospects minds without it being a constant. Hey, you ready yet? you ready yet. When are we doing this thing? Uh, hey, I, I got a special deal on this. If you buy right now, oh God, please don't do that to me. Could, could not agree more, Adam. It is it is not going to inspire me. And you know, I've you know, in addition to all those you know people's radar screens I'm on where they're checking in with me because I am interested and may say yes at some point. And you know, if I don't say yes, 
what if I refer somebody to them and they end up getting a sale anyway? That they could get a sale from somebody they didn't reach themselves because I sent them over. Keep my goodwill going and that could happen for you. Uh, however, I have had folks that have tried to do that hard sell thing on me and tell me that I'm a lost cause unless I sign up. And I just say, you know, right now what I'm saying to you is not now, but let's keep talking. But if you want to push me for an answer, I can give you a hard no right now. Yep, exactly. And and I would rather and just... I, and, I, and I don't want to be on the receiving end of a hard no myself. I So uh, the couple times it's happened in the past year, I felt very bad, like, oh boy, what did I do? I did not want a hard no from this. Yeah, definitely makes sense to me, Adam, because I mean, that's the worst thing we can do is, is end up burning that bridge, especially for no real reason. Uh, there's no reason for that hard selling to push people. We, we want them to come to that sale because they want to, not because they feel like they're being forced. Plus, they're going to get better results if they want to be there than if they feel forced. Yeah. So here's one of the things that I know has come up with folks who knew you were going to be on Business Creators Radio and wanted me to share a few questions with you. Here's one of them. Uh, what works to capture your audience and captivate them when you're doing things like clubhouse rooms and webinars? So, I mean, obviously we all know the power of stories, right? Storytelling yeah. is, is by far your strongest tool for any of those pieces because essentially you're letting people connect with you on this emotional level. If we think about storytelling, the reason it works so well is it creates dopamine and oxytocin in the person who's hearing yes. it, right? And so if you go into a webinar or you go into a clubhouse room and you do not have stories prepared, ready to go, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're doing everybody who's listening to that a disservice. So honestly, that's one of the easiest ways. The other, the other way too, to, to really engage is, is show up with some energy, show up with some life, be excited to be there. Use that tonality, use your, your pacing, use cadence, create musicality with your delivery so that it doesn't sound like you're just speaking in this monotonous way where people are, you know, falling asleep while listening to you, like bring some emotion to your voice, have some presence and some warp, warmth behind it and, and enjoy that process. Don't look at it as a, a chore of, oh, I've got to do this webinar again, go into it because if you affect one person in a positive way, the ripple effects of that, you'll never be able to fully comprehend and every time right. we go into a situation, that should be our focus. I want to reach one person and move them in some way. And if we do that, we take a more intentional approach to speaking and to leading those people in those uh, situations. Yeah. And I think that's particularly important when it comes to, say, webinars. Uh, most of us attend webinars knowing that there's some sort of pitch or at least punchline to the whole thing. And we attend them because we are also looking for a few little things we can add to our aha notebook that maybe we can take and use today. Uh, it's also why they say that when it comes to things like webinars, that the money's in the follow-up. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you have essentially what you're doing in those situations, right? Is you're providing a lot of this, this foundational work to people to show them who you are, what you have to offer. You're trying to show your credibility and your likability. And that doesn't mean you're going to close a sale right there. But it means right. that person is going to trust you and like you, which means when they want to get on a call and you follow up and you say, hey, I saw you attended the webinar, would love to know your thoughts. And if you have any questions that maybe I can help you with. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to feel the sense of, yeah, like I can ask Adam because he seemed like a really nice guy and ha had yep. like a real knowledge base. And then when they send you that question, you say, hey, I love this question. It'd be great. Maybe we could jump on a call and chat about this. And now all of a sudden you're, you're creating 
that, that movement, that forward momentum to connect with that person on a deeper level. And now you already have this kind of warm connection because they've watched you, seen you, liked you, and they trust you, which that's really kind of your key is you're doing so much of this foundational work to warm that audience up so that when you actually get on a call with them, they're receptive to what you have to say. Okay, this is where I have to do a bifurcation for my own audience. Uh, I am the creator of the podcast reach system. Many of our listeners to Business Creators Radio are aware of the podcast reach system. And they've also seen my presentations. They've seen my marketing. They've seen my articles where I say that one of the worst things you can possibly say to somebody in a direct message is, hey, want to hop on a Zoom real quick? Well, the reason I say that the way I say it is because if that's your opening line, that does seem salesy. Like, hey, we just met, but you want to get on a call and just talk about what we're doing, which in the prospect's mind often translates to, oh boy, he's going to tell me what he's doing and hope I volunteer myself as a client. Do I have time for this shit? However, here's what I want our audience to capture. Where you position that type of offer, that type of, uh, that type of enhancement or upgrade to the conversation is critical because the way Robbie described it to you is when you say, hey, let's hop on the phone, let's schedule a quick call, something like that. Now it's for a purpose that comes from the prospect rather than you trying to push it onto the prospect. So it becomes something that feels like it was their decision to do, even if your goal was to get them on the phone all along. That, that is exactly right. Essentially what you're doing is you're letting them invite you to ask them for the call. Right. And, and that's a totally different game than that cold DM of like, hey, I'd love to jump on a call and talk to you. Like, why? We haven't had any interaction. I don't know you. I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't have any of this. Yep. I tried, I tried that strategy because the coach told me I should. And <laughs> I tried it with 10 people and some of them gave me the same response. And it, and it, and it, and it almost sounded like they were all coached to respond the same way. And, they, and all seven of these responses I got to the 10 I put out read something like, gee, I wonder what you want to talk with me about. It, it's in, other, a, in other words, you're saying, okay, salesman, whatever. Yeah, I mean, and, and unless they're just absolutely dying for what you have to offer at that point, like there's no way that they're going to say yes, because there's no likability, there's no trust factor there. And you've got to develop that. And that's why there's really this approach, like we were talking about the webinar gives you that you can follow up quickly and say, Hey, really, you know, appreciate you, you watching. I saw you were on there. Just wanted to see if you had any questions or anything I could help with. And the truth is if they don't have anything, they're just going to say, no, I'm good. Thank you so much. But if they do have a question, that's where you get that opening to say, Hey, like, I, that's a great question. Maybe we could like jump on a call and we could chat about it so that I can help you a little bit more. You don't even have to sell at that point. You can continue just to answer that, that question, talk to them. And then they may ask you, well, do you have anything like any services that you can offer me further? Like a lot of it is just about getting the other person, the prospect to, to give you permission to start giving those offers to them. Right. Right. And see that, and that right there, you've just defined what permission-based marketing means at a deeper level. On the surface level, it means, did they opt in properly through a form and are you in compliance with can spam, castle, GDPR, and all that? But actual permission-based marketing deals with what you said, which is gaining their permission to make the, make offers to them, not because they follow some technical process mandated by some government body that probably has no clue about marketing to begin with, uh, but, uh, but rather the prospect's permission. 
where they say, yes, I actually want to hear what you have to offer. I want you to tell me about your products and services because I may be interested. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, now, that covers how we use webinars is that tool. Uh, but overall, overall, how can you ensure your sales prospects are hanging on to your every word since we've established that particularly when it comes to higher ticket items, this process can take time. Yeah, I, I mean, that is is one key with, with higher ticket is there's a, you know, a real nurturing process that has to go there. And so the way that you, you have people really hanging on again, so I'll reiterate this again, have stories to demonstrate, stories of you working with clients like, like them in situations like them. You also want to use things like rhetorical questions. You want to use imagine language. You want to help them understand kind of why you can help them. And, and one of the things that I, I love to point out is one of the easiest ways to stand out as an expert in your field and to connect with the prospect is to ask the right questions. If you ask the right, right questions, they're going to realize you understand them. And it's not just like it's asking the right questions. It's giving them space to, to talk to you and to really listen to them. And one of the ways that you will get people to hang on to your words is if they think that you're really paying attention to them and valuing what they have to say. And so much of this comes down to active listening, to mirroring some of the words that they have to say, to understand the language that they use, to just really make sure that they feel seen, heard, and valued, which then gives right. this idea of reciprocity, right? If we go to Cialdini and some of these persuasion principles, one of them is reciprocity, where they, if the prospect feels like I'm really paying attention, listening to them, then they're going to feel the same when I speak, that they really want to listen to me and pay attention because I'm giving them that time, I'm giving them that attention, and they need to do the same thing towards me. It's, it's just like uh, the principle of reciprocity is especially funny if you have kids, because if you have kids and you throw a birthday party, you invite kids and their parents over as well. Well, guess what happens when they invite you now to their child's birthday party? You feel that you have to go because you have to reciprocate, reciprocate them coming to yours. Right. And the same is true here in this conversation. If you really are paying attention, really listening, really engaged with that person, they're going to do the same thing for you. So they'll hang on to what you're having to say far more just because of the attention you're giving them. Reciprocity is one of the most powerful things that I've discovered in all my years. This is why when you're at the car dealership looking to buy the car, you never accept the cup of coffee that the finance officer will offer you until you've decided you actually are buying that car. On the other hand, it is the finance officer's job to get you to accept that cup of coffee as soon as possible. I'd love it's to share. I'd love to share this one time. Um, this was in 2011 and I was uh, at a dealership where I was actually interested in the vehicle and they were doing the trade in on appraisal, which is the, which is code for hold your car as long as possible. So you don't make it to the next dealership on your list. And uh, it's harder for you to say, eh, I'll think about it and come back. And while I'm waiting, the salesperson I'm dealing with uh, comes to me holding a bottle of Mountain Dew in two cups. He says, hey, I just got this Mountain Dew out of the uh, vending machine. Uh, I can't drink this all myself. You want to split it with me? And I said, sure, I'd love a Mountain Dew. But I'm not leasing a car from you today. 
And we both laughed. And then a couple hours later, I drove off with my new lease car. And we laughed about it again. It, it's so true, right? It's, it's one of these ideas that there's a reason why a lot of, you know, uh, executives and professionals will have like the bottle of whiskey in their, in their uh, office, because when they offer you a drink, it's very much that same idea. And, and once you start figuring out how that tool is used, how that persuasion principle, uh, it, it really does open up kind of a whole new world when you really start understanding this. The same with so many of those principles. If you actually study, right, a lot of the influence and the persuasion from Cialdini, you, yes. can, learn, you can learn so much about how, how humans think and, and, and react and make decisions. I mean, one of my favorites from that is there was, a, there was actually a furniture store that when people came to the website, they would split them. One would have clouds in the background. One would have money in the background. And the people who came and saw the clouds chose their sofa based on comfort level. Whereas the ones who saw money in the background chose their sofa based on which one was the least expensive. They did not come in with those priorities in mind, but purely by seeing those images, their brain started to essentially trick them into focusing on one or the other. And there's just yeah. so much of this kind of goodness to start studying and realize how powerful persuasion really is uh, when we're thinking about speaking and, and framing ideas and talking to people. And, and like we said, keeping that prospect engaged with our message. Right. What I love to share with folks uh, in my podcast work who get so hung up on having Hollywood quality sound and not being willing to even consider interviewing somebody until they bought $25,000 worth of equipment and literally added an addition to their house with soundproofing in the walls. Well, here's the tactic around it. And we do this right here on Business Creators Radio is you add intro and outro bumpers that have high quality music and audio. It raises the perceived value of everything else. So think of it this way. You have a talk radio station and you, you know you, you tune into however you tune into it. The host's audio feed has that NPR quality to it. Yet they may have a guest who they're interviewing who's dialing in from their cell phone somewhere. Does it feel like the person dialing in from the cell phone is an amateur when you're in that situation? No, because the rising tide buoys all ships. Yeah, I, Adam, I, I love that. It, it's so true. It's like the, the anchoring principle, right? You anchor yep. with, this, with this intro music and the outro music. And if we think about primacy and recency... The first thing your audience hears is really high quality music. And the last thing they hear is it's really high quality music. So what does that tell their brain? Oh, this is a really high quality product, even though the middle could be, you know, a hot mess, but because of the way that it's been anchored, it's just done. So not that of course people should do that, but it's just a, a really interesting principle to think through. Sometimes we overcomplicate a lot of things and we get stuck in the minutia instead of just realizing there's some simple ways to work around those ideas. I wonder how many of our listeners right now would believe it or not that I am conducting my half of this interview while sitting outside on my balcony with an air conditioner uh, noise running in the background. I'm sitting out here in 117 degree Las Vegas heat on my laptop recording this through Zoom. I'm wearing a sleeveless t-shirt with my Mr. Fan running in the background and I'm holding a cigar and I have my iced tea next to me. 
So, sounds like you're running it right, Adam. Yeah, but uh, but until I said that, I wonder how many people thought I was in an office wearing a suit. It, it's it's one of the things I've noticed too is I, I travel a lot and I just I take my literally my you know MacBook Pro and my Blue Yeti and and that's that's all I do. I mean that's a, that's my you're, that's you're, my you're setup. You're in a hotel room right now. You you opened up your MacBook Pro, you plugged in your Yeti, and that's it. I mean, I I caught a glimpse of it in the green room. You're sitting at the you're sitting at that table they give in your hotel room. Your bed's in the background. You got your microphone sitting on the table right next to your laptop. That's your entire setup. You don't have mixer boards or soundproofing or or equalizers or anything like that. What you've simply done is configured that Yeti when you plug it into your MacBook so that it's its signals are optimized. So it sounds good when it transmits. That's it. Yeah, that's, that, that's the truth that sometimes it's just getting, getting things done and, and not being worried about perfection because that prevents us from actually taking action. Right. So in terms of communication, we don't always have to be perfect. You know, honestly, Adam, in fact, you, you shouldn't be perfect. Uh, there's there's a great kind of antidote about Winston Churchill who would actually write in mistakes into his speeches. And uh-huh. not only that, I mean, he would write actual mistakes, ums and, you know, stuttering words and these moments where he'd take these big pauses and act like he just came up with an idea on the fly because he wanted to appear human and natural and organic in that presentation. It was that important to him to to literally write in mistakes. And the truth is, if you sound perfect, people are going to think you're a robot. They're going to think it's rehearsed. They're not going to believe you. There's going to be this detachment that they have from you. So it's okay to make mistakes. In fact, you should make mistakes. You should choose the wrong word. You should occasionally throw in a filler word. You should should have normal human things come out because at the end of the day, people want to trust people, not a robot. And so if you're perfect, they're going to be like, I can't, like this guy doesn't, He's not me. I can't work with him because like, I'm never going to be that polished. I'm never going to be that perfect. And so you actually can hurt your credibility by becoming too far uh, one way. It's like you are reading from the training materials in the podcast reach system. We cover the exact same damn thing. (laughs) Uh, Now there are, there's a bit of a split that I see in the webinar and podcast type communities where on the one hand, they believe in being polished about it. So they may have their script and they may not be, let's just basically just drill this down to webinars. I've seen folks who believe that they are just great at speaking off the cuff. Hey, just put me on Zoom. Tell me we're recording. uh, Tell me we're broadcasting and all the people in the room and I'll just wing it and it'll be fantastic. And then they don't sell a damn thing. Then you have the people who will have a script and they'll read off the script, they'll think they're being authentic about it, and then they won't sell a thing. Now, there's this other secret group that I'm aware of, because I've helped to create some of them, where they will do as Winston Churchill did. They will script it, it'll have a transcript, it'll have a a screenplay, so to speak, that also includes the non sequiturs, the mistakes, the, the pauses, everything else, so that it's a natural conversation. I've seen sales scripts, that are given to salespeople they can use for closing deals that have all this stuff integrated into it. And their practice is not to become perfectly polished and saying all the right words. Their practice is 
how to read this thing and sound like they're just speaking extemporaneously, even though they're reading something word for word. You know, my, my favorite approach is actually to, to do more extemporaneous speaking. So okay. that is my preferred method where, right, extemporaneous speaking is it is prepared, but without notes. And that tends to be my favorite style because that means you've put in the preparation to be precise, to know what you're trying to say, know the message and your intent. But on the same, uh, in the same way, you're also being natural and you're letting the conversation flow based, again, based on the conversation that you're having. So you're not stuck to a script and just trying to repeat it. Now, I certainly understand that there are some people who are very, very skilled at memorizing something and making it feel like it is completely natural. Right. And if that's you, then, then great, go ahead and, and do that. But I think most people would benefit the most from just extemporaneous where you're prepared, you know what you want to say, you're using frameworks and you kind of have it, it formulated, but you're not sticking to just like a pure script because that really removes your ability to be flexible. That removes your ability to connect, I think, deeper to that, that person you're speaking to because the script can never take into account everything that's going on with the person. And so my personal stance is if I can create great extemporaneous speakers, then that gets me the most bang for my buck with those people that I'm working with. And what gets us there? I would say practice, repetition, persistent, persistent consistency. I don't know any other way to get good at that. Yeah, you, you just have to put in the work, the work, put in the reps. You've right. got to, you just got to get comfortable realizing that early on, it might be rough. You might not be great at it, but it gets better over time. And you also, just like any athlete, any, any, you know, professional, you should review. Like if you're recording things, go and listen to them, figure out like, what did I do? Well, what didn't make sense? Where did I ramble too much? Where did I lose my way? Where it was maybe I had too many filler words in there or I have a specific crutch. I, I deal with this a lot with people. They use softeners. They use lots of phrases like I think, or is that okay? Or my opinion, or I believe. And it's a lot of these, these language choices to make it safer for them, where if somebody doesn't agree, it doesn't hurt them as much. And so you can go and listen for those and be like, hey, you're, you're using way too many softeners. Just own your perspective, own your thinking. And if someone pushes back, that's okay. Like, the goal isn't that everyone's going to love or agree with what you have to say. In fact, if they do, you're probably doing something wrong. Uh-huh. Inside my podcast reach training system, I even say in the slides that there may be things that the person taking the course may disagree with. And I invite them to enjoy their disagreements with what I'm saying and to put it to the test. And if they find that their point of view holds up, then that just demonstrates that their point of view is even better now because it's been put to the test. If they choose to allow themselves the opportunity of looking at a different point of view that could get them different results, that's okay as well. We need, we need to get okay with deep thinking and challenging yeah. our own beliefs. There's, right. there's, there's nothing wrong. In fact, that makes us better thinkers. That helps us crystallize our, our point of view. And it's okay too to change where you might get exposed to a new perspective. For instance, you might say something and they came in disagreeing with it, but as they go through your lessons and your teaching, they say, you know what, Adam was right. Like I've actually changed my mind now because of this. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're near the top here, and there are two things we're going to do. The second of which is I'm going to give you the opportunity to share with our audience. The first is I have one more question for you, Robbie. What's one thing that our listeners can utilize or begin to apply that will make their next presentation better based on anything we've said here today? So in other words, as soon as they finish streaming this in a minute or two, what is one thing they can do right now that can move the needle for them? As simple as it sounds, and, and I'm going to just point on this again, build a story bank. And it's just an idea. Most people do not actually pull out the stories from their lives, from their work, from their travels, from their family, from their friends that they can then use to connect to other people. And so what happens is too many times people just say feature, 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 and they don't uh -huh. ever back anything up with story. And the reason they don't back it up with the story is because in the moment they can't think of one. And it's because they've never taken them out and looked at them in what I call a story bank. So you can create it on Rome or Evernote or Google Doc or Microsoft Word or Excel. It literally doesn't matter where, but start pulling out your best stories that you can use. And they should be from work. They should be from family. They should be from travel. They should be from friends. They should be from college and from high school and from different jobs that you've worked so that you can say, look, I've got these 30 stories and these 10 are my best 10. And you just always know anytime you're talking, you can always pull out one of these 10 to connect to somebody. And if you put in that intentional practice and actually write them out and they don't need to be like fully written out stories, just the bullet points of like, Hey, what was going on? You will be amazed at how much better you are as a storyteller, which will allow you to con connect far more with the people that you're talking to. Wow. That's amazing. So for anybody who's on the edge of their seat and would like to discover more about performative speaking, and how it can benefit them in their presentations, in their speeches, in their sales presentations, and just overall, and how they get through business and life. Uh, how do they get a hold of you? And what do you have to offer? And how what does that experience look like for them? So I'd say the, the best places to follow me, because again, going back to what we talked about earlier, I love to just give value kind of out there. So I'm very active on social media. That on Twitter, that's at Robbie Crab. On LinkedIn and on Instagram, it's at the Robbie Crab. And okay. I put videos and tweets and ideas out all the time. I also write regular articles on my website, which is robbiecrabtree.com. And for anybody that wants to get a hold of me, they can email me at robbie at robbiecrab.com. I run a group coaching program for performative speaking. And I also do one-on-one -on -one consulting work uh, and training for you know teams at, at corporations uh, as well. So those are, are some of the options that are available to people. And if anybody wants more information, please feel free to reach out to me and happy to chat with anybody. Let's make sure we got the email address right. You said Robbie at RobbieCrab.com. Yep, that's exactly right. Aha, so you have a domain for email. I like it. I, I do that way. You got you to gotta know my email instead of just uh, uh, going and guessing from my, my main website. Ah, uh, so you hear, you hear that, our listeners? We're now part of the inner circle, huh? That's huh? right. That's All right. right. So, Robbie Crabtree, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor, and believe me, an education. Thank you so much, Adam. This has been great. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. 
Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.